Hello, everyone, and welcome to Success Shorts. I'm Arul Chanel. Today, we're lucky to be joined by Lee Carter. Lee is the president of Maslansky & Partners, which is a language strategy firm based on the single idea that it's not about what you say, it's about what they hear. She's also a regular Fox News contributor and the author of the fascinating book that covers the power of linguistics called Persuasion, Convincing Others When Facts Don't Seem to Matter. Lee and I have an insightful chat about a topic that I'm fascinated about, linguistics, and in particular, the power that empathy plays in effectively communicating a message. We apply this thought to a lot of topics, from politics to communicating with your spouse. One thing to note is throughout the conversation, there are a couple technical glitches that do arise, so I appreciate your patience in advance. So with that, I hope you enjoy our time with Lee. Let's go. This is awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. So happy to be here. Based off of the conversation that we were having prior, I'm just very energized around this because what you do really fascinates the heck out of me. And it's something that I feel like people should grasp on a bit of a deeper level. So I'd like to start things out by asking what you've learned about yourself during this COVID period and also how this unique period has impacted you professionally. I've learned a lot in this time. I think we all have. Yesterday was the first time I went back into my office in over six months. And what I've learned in this time is, A, I get so much energy off of other people and my team that it's been really, really hard to have that absence of human interaction. And B, I've learned how important human interaction is to real communication. And so professionally, things have really shifted for us. March 12th was the last day that we did in-person research. And our business at Ms. Lansky and Partners is we're a, a research firm that focuses on messaging and language. So March 12th, 70% of our business was in-person focus groups. We had groups of between eight and 30 people in a room every day talking about different topics for our clients, trying to understand how to get the message right. And virtually overnight, we had to pivot our business to be 100% virtual. So it's been a time of innovation, but then it's also how do you get your whole team on the same page when you're all over the country and a couple people even around the world? How do you get everybody on the same page, marching in the same direction, change communication, get everybody excited and trained on a new way of doing business? And essentially, everybody had a new job overnight. And we're not alone in that. That's happened to everybody. And then the question now is, how many of these changes are going to last? How many of these changes are going to be things that stick? And I think one of the things that I'm learning is that as a manager and a leader, our time of communication, we think about internal communications often in big organizations, you know, is a division within the communications department. But I think in this time, all of our jobs, internal comms, and what internal comms now means is really change communication. How do we get people comfortable being more agile, being more flexible, learning new skills, trying to find new ways to connect? That's how my job has changed so, so much. But in some ways, it's invigorating. And in other ways, it's really challenging. I like how you brought up that term agile. Usually it's used in the tech world. But I think it's very applicable to what we've been forced to do when it comes to innovation and how we communicate. And 
That's a really healthy way to approach it because I think you're right. It is a new world and to think of it through those old parameters doesn't necessarily serve us because I don't think it's ever going to go back to the way it was. So it's kind of dealing with this new paradigm. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. You know, before we get into, you know, the language of politics and effective communication in general, which is what I'm really looking forward to speaking about, I'd like to take a quick step back in time. And how did you originally begin to go down this road? And if you think about like those internal traits that help guide us along our path, which one would you say that you possess that's allowed you to thrive in this very unique specialty? The interesting thing about being able to find the right language to change people's hearts and minds on issues that are important starts with curiosity. It doesn't start with knowledge. Our philosophy at Ms. Lansky and Partners is that it's not what you say that matters. It's what people hear. When we engage in communication, we often start with what we want to say. We often try to get all of our points exactly right. What facts do we need to know? And most people start the conversation saying that if people only knew X, Y, Z, then they would buy our product, like us, respect us, change their mind, vote on what we want them to vote on, whatever it is, if they only knew these things. If that's your starting point, you're almost always going to fail because your starting point in communication has to be curiosity about the first person that you are trying to communicate with. Why do they think what they think? Why do they do what they do? Why do they believe what they believe? Because if you don't start there, you're not going to craft a message that meets them where they are, and it's going to engage them the way that they need to be engaged. And it's really, really important to be able to say, okay, I'm going to start here from the position of, it doesn't matter what I think, it only matters what they think. So let's start with them. And then let's start thinking about what do they need to know in order to meet them where they are and sort of maybe move the needle. So I think curiosity is ultimately the most important characteristic that's got me where I am. And I think on our team, I think that's what serves people really, really well, asking those questions of why. As far as how did I get where I got, it's a funny thing in life how you can have a passion and you might not even realize that it's something that you could later do for a living. But when I was younger, we used to have a lot of conversations at our dinner table Um, and you know, my parents always encouraged us to have conversations at the dinner table. And one of the conversations I used to to bring to the table was about language. And so I was in high school and I would say things like, what do you think the difference is between a nerd, a geek, a dweeb, and a dork? They sound like the same thing, but they're totally different. What is the difference? And we'd have these conversations. It's kind of a silly thing, but if you look in the dictionary, they probably all say the same thing, except in your mind's eye, they bring up very different visuals, right? And I was obsessed with these kinds of differences in the way that you could describe something and get a totally different picture. So that's high school. Then I went to college and I became really, really consumed. I was a history major studying early modern Europe and I was trying to understand how could anybody have followed Hitler? That makes no sense. So I studied language um, and propaganda, the use of propaganda in that. And then I studied sociology to try and understand human behavior. And then I went into marketing and it was interesting. It built on all of my interests, but, and marketing is a great profession, but I was super, super interested in trying to understand politics. I was always sort of a political junkie on the side and I would try to understand what was going on there. And then I went to a conference and I heard the founder of my firm speaking and he was speaking about the importance of language in the 2004 election. And I thought, I am fascinated. Somebody's speaking my language. Like I, I have watched elections and always thought it was the power of language messaging that really you could almost predict who was going to win by who was laying out the, the framing, who was who had the message that everybody was reacting to, who had the message that was creating more hope. 
And so I started trying to meet him through the conference. He really didn't have any interest in meeting me. And I spent a year trying to email him. And then finally, a friend of mine ended up at a dinner party with him and said, my friend is obsessed with your firm. And he said, oh, we're opening a New York office. You should have her reach out. I ended up having an interview a year later. And here I am more than 15 years later and feel lucky every day to do what I do. That's a really fascinating history as to how you got to where you are. And the fact that this kind of was sparked in some ways by a fascination around how Hitler was able to manipulate language to serve him and his message in a country of seemingly ordinary people and the psychology behind that. That's actually something that I studied in college, too. Is it really? (laughs) It really is. I focused on Nazi Germany and... (laughs) It is an absolutely fascinating area to kind of get into to understand humans. There's an amazing quote, I think it was like Sam Harris or someone like that who said it, like, we're all capable of having that happen to us if we're not aware. And the fact that he was able to use language to manipulate that to happen was absolutely shocking, but also in some ways kind of brilliant in a really horrible psychopathic type of way. But it it really does stress the importance of language. And then to see it, how it's played out in the elections uh, recently. And you and I, before we we were recording, we were talking about the Obama election, the first one in 2008. And the power of language was so very present in that. And then in 2016, when Donald Trump was elected, the power of language was on full display then. And then we also kind of referred that back to when Mitt Romney was running in 2012 and the lack of language, even though he had a very good platform, his inability to communicate that was ever present. And it's just so fascinating how it kind of weaves in and out. I'd like to focus on that for a moment because I think communication, it's a really tricky thing. Before we get into where things are going right with communication, I'd like to think about, you know, where would you say that we go wrong in how we communicate and, you know, what are some of those pitfalls that we should be aware of when we're trying to communicate effectively? I think that one of the biggest missing factors in communication today, when you're trying to engage, and we're talking about politics right now, is a complete lack of empathy. We get angry with people who disagree with us. We judge people who disagree with us. And I think that there used to be a time that you could enter a conversation with someone and start with a premise of, I believe they want what's best for our country, but we disagree about how to get there. And that benefit of the doubt that we enter into conversations has been lost on both sides. And when I was preparing for writing my book, I came across a book that was not related to communication at all. It's called It's Not Always Depression. And it talked about processing feelings in order to communicate and engage and to be more productive. It talked about three feelings that will keep us from anything productive. And those three feelings are shame, anxiety, and guilt. If people are in shame, anxiety, or guilt, they're not going to be able to be productive. Meaning they're going to end up either burying their head in their sand. That's often when people get stuck in addiction. It's often when people get enraged, angry. And I started thinking about that in the context of communication. And what I realized is that so often when we're trying to change somebody's mind, we tap into those three emotions, whether it's on purpose or whether it's not. Often it's not, but it happens anyway. I'll give you a couple of examples. Think about people communicating about climate change. Oftentimes, communications about climate change say things like, if we don't act now, we're going to be underwater by the year 2025. 
that is tapping into somebody's anxiety. So if you're not on board with climate change, if you're not really engaged, you hear that, you're going to put somebody in complete anxiety and they're going to shut down on, on issues like gun control. If you don't support stronger gun control laws, you must not care about children. Guilt. When you put people in a shame, anxiety, or guilt, they're not going to be motivated to change their mind. In fact, they're probably going to dig in their heels and probably just start an argument. And yet that's where we often are. You hear it in political conversations all the time. When you talk about if you support this candidate, you must be a racist, xenophobe, etc. If you support this candidate, you must be part of the liberal mob who's going to take down America. That kind of language taps into those three emotions. Those three emotions are completely nonproductive and are not going to make anybody change their mind. That's a really fabulous point. And I think, you know, we could even take that and apply it on the personal level. When you think about the different emotions and how we communicate, you know, with our spouses, with our boyfriends, girlfriends, with our kids, we need to be mindful with those same things. Because if it does trigger something that puts someone on the defensive or puts them into like that, that negative mindset, we're going to have a very hard time getting through to them. And they're going to have a very hard time hearing what we're actually trying to say. I'm divorced at this point. But when I think back to those instances where my ex-wife would say, all right, you know, this would be something we really need to, you know, we need to go see counseling or we need to, you need to listen to me better or something like this. If you, depending upon how you frame that, it really depends on whether that gets heard or not. So if you say totally. it one way, if you say it one way, you're throwing this on me. You're not hearing what I'm saying. I'm not hearing what you're saying. It's completely lost and that causes more issues. Whereas if you put it in a different way, like I want us to be getting to a better place together, it might make sense for us to do this together. Or it's like a simple reframe. And then all of a sudden that message is, is accepted versus denied. And I think that that is very pertinent with what's going on right now with the social unrest and yeah. some of the messaging that's going on there. You are inherently racist or systemically racist is such a triggering concept. And I understand what the pr people who are saying it are trying to get across. But when I hear it, it is the wrong way to do it because my first reaction is, the hell I am. Exactly. And then, right. and then it's very hard to hear anything beyond that. And the same could be said about any of these things. It could be said about the COVID discussion or like you said, climate change or whatever it might be. There needs to be a coming together on how this stuff is communicated and a deeper thought put into that. And I can't agree more with you on those missteps that are taking place in communication right now. A hundred percent. I want to change this just a little bit because we are dealing with psychology a little bit here. So if, if you were to take a step back and it's easy to realize that there are certain ways to communicate that are ineffective and effective. We were just talking about that. But how can we be more effective in communicating in this space without coming off as manipulative? Because there's an effective way to talk in the work environment. There's also an effective or, or when you're trying to get across something that you're trying to move in that realm versus how you talk with someone on the interpersonal friendship relationship level. Like, how can we do that with more care? Because it can come off very differently depending upon where you're operating. Yep. I want to make really clear. I'm not talking about manipulation. What I'm talking about is trying to change somebody's mind when you have the facts on your side, when you're trying to do something in the right way with good intention. I teach in the book something I call active empathy. And I say before you engage in any communication, you have to do three things. You have to understand three things about the people that you're trying to communicate with. And that is the first thing is, why do they feel the way they feel? 
Why do they do what they do is the second thing. And why do they believe what they believe? Truth of the matter is all of us have feelings and whether you believe in God or whether it's just about biology for you, our feelings all do something for us and send signals to ourselves that we have to do certain things. So you think about those inhibitory emotions, shame, anxiety, guilt, that basically makes us shut down. The other emotions are core emotions and those make us do good things. Some of them are actually negative emotions. Anger can be a good thing, and that tells you there's a problem that needs to be solved. Joy, it tells you that you need to continue doing what you're doing. But anyway, all of these cases, understanding the emotions that are at play when you're talking about a certain topic is so, so important. So I'm just going to use an example of climate change, since we talked about that earlier. How do you engage in a conversation about climate change with somebody who doesn't believe it? Why do they feel the way they feel about it? And have that conversation. When you say the word climate change, why do they, how do they feel? Try to understand that. And I'll, I'll pull this all the way through when I get through each of the different areas. The second area is why do they do what they do? So why does someone do what they do? And I look at not just at the surface level. You know, when you're talking to someone and there's, you know, you say to them, so why don't you recycle? You care about climate. Well, you know, it's a pain and it's not easy and they don't have pickup and I'm not so sure. Well, really, why? Really, why? And then you try to get understand the why. Really that they don't care about the environment or is there something else? Maybe it's just that at the end of it, you're going to find out they're hanging on by a thread. And the last thing they have time for is separating out their garbage. And whatever the case is, it doesn't necessarily mean they're a bad person. It just might mean something else. And then the third piece is, why do they believe what they believe? So what values at play here? One of the things that I talk about a lot is that there's something called the moral foundations theory. And it was written by a guy named Jonathan Haidt. And he wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. He posits that most political beliefs come from an embedded moral value that is primary. And he says that by and large, liberals' primary value is harm versus care. And that's why when you think about how they talk about gun control, how they talk about welfare, how they talk about all sorts of issues, it comes down to how do we take care of people? That's our primary value. He also says that Republicans, by and large, don't have one primary value, but you'll often find that their primary value is liberty versus oppression. That's why you'll hear so much of their language be framed around the idea of you have a right to. It's about freedom. Nothing makes me more afraid than the government overstepping and taking away my rights. No one can do it better than me. And so when you're engaging in a conversation between those two, if you don't understand which values at play, you're going to miss each other entirely. So think about gun control. You have one whose primary value is harm versus care and the other whose liberty versus oppression. What happens? You could have the person whose primary value harm versus care say, you don't care about young kids if you think that a gun is more important than you. And that person will get defensive, go into anxiety and shame and shut down. But what if instead that person understood the primary value of the other was freedom, liberty versus oppression? And they said, I understand that to you, there's nothing scarier than the government taking away your right to, to bear arms. I understand that you have that right under the Constitution. But I'm terrified to send my kid to school right now. Can't we find a way to compromise so that you feel free and I feel safe? Can you imagine if that conversation happened more often, we'd find ways to compromise because we're actually listening to the other. And this just isn't about anything political. This plays into how we communicate about our business. This plays into how you communicate about personal finances. A lot of people try to encourage others to save by saying things to them like, if you don't start saving X amount by the time you're 30, you're never going to be able to retire. You're going to put them into complete overwhelm, shame, anxiety, and guilt, right? And so how do you reframe it? And so 
you can talk about, I understand your struggle, or I understand balancing all of these different things. How can we do it so that you can live a great life today, but then have a better life tomorrow? So I think understanding how to play between those three different areas is really important before you even begin your message. It's almost like language really hinges on empowering and empowering really at its foundation is about empathy. And when you look at how you just deconstructed that, it really kind of gets to, you know, whether you shut someone down or whether you empower them determines whether, whether you're effective or not. I want to stay with politics with this question and how we respond to this, because right now we find ourselves in an election cycle. And I think this could apply to any election cycle. What should we know about the art of persuasion and how it's being used in an environment where people seem to be so polarized and dogmatic in the way that they're thinking about this? We often can't see when we're so emotional about these issues. When you're fighting with someone, you're saying, I can't believe you believe that. When everybody's reacting to that, I think it's really important to realize you are now on the emotional side of things, which means that you might not be elevating it above to where you need. When you're in that moment, you need to take a step back and try to re-engage. If you find yourself in extreme judgment, which I think also happens in this moment on both sides, there is no right side of this because we are so, so, so polarized. You have to take a step above and realize what is it that you're trying to accomplish. So I think it's really, really important always to have that big mission. But I think the thing to remember as you're going through this is you should engage in these conversations with one big point that you want to walk away with. If you look back at all of the winning campaigns, they'll always have one umbrella message that you remember, whether it was Barack Obama's hope and change, Donald Trump's make America great again. You think about the presidents who won, you'll remember their themes, their one thing that they stood for. You will not remember the person who lost almost ever. And then, you know, you can go through Wikipedia, look up the slogans and you'll realize it pretty quickly. When you're trying to engage with someone on an issue that's politically charged, you've got to always have sort of your mission in mind. What am I trying to accomplish? What do I want to leave this conversation with? It's not usually to be right. It's usually to say, if I've just opened their mind a little bit, that they're open to a different perspective than I've won. So I think if you have that really clear in your mind, you're going to have a much more productive conversation. And if you have that one thing that you want them to walk away with, you're going to be much more successful. I'll go back to climate change again. We did a project with what I would call climate change deniers, people who don't believe that climate change is real. And our job was to try to introduce the the concept of climate change and get them on board. We could have gone a number of different approaches, right? You go in and start showing them all the facts. That's not going to work. You could go in and talk about all the science. That's not going to work. To talk about if we don't act now, this is what's going to happen. That's not going to work. We're having conversations with them. What we found is that it was the term climate change itself that was causing problems. We found out these people care about the environment. We found out that these people all wanted to be able to take their grandchildren camping someday, that they cared about clean water, that they cared about their communities. But when they heard the term climate change itself, they thought climate change is a problem that is going to be very expensive to fix. It's going to make things more expensive for me. People who support climate change hate people like me. People who support climate change are often very hypocritical. They talk about the need for a plastic bag ban, but then they're going to go bulldoze a whole forest to build a big house. And so they felt like climate change was not for them, but they really cared about the planet and they really wanted to protect the environment. So what we learned in this is that take out the term climate change and you talked about something that we could all agree on, you could get people on the same page. We came up with different language that said something about 
I don't do it for what I read on the news. I do it to protect these views. I've got my reasons. What are yours? Took out the term climate change and we talked more about what we were trying to accomplish. Got everybody on the same page and then you get people engaged in the environment and then you can move them down the curve so that eventually the language of climate change and et cetera will be resonant with them. But you had to start somewhere by getting them on that continuum. That's really fascinating because you can take that same approach with an idea like Black Lives Matter and apply it to that, where you take just that the phrase Black Lives Matter out and everyone wants to try to solve that problem. But that that phrase Black Lives Matter for some is very triggering, just like climate change is very triggering. Imagine if we tried to remove that one thing, what kind of progress could be made? And I think you see good corporations that are making inroads with how they approach the issues that are important to the movement. They've removed using that phrase and focused on the things that everyone can agree upon instead. And it's been very effective. And I really like the way you frame that with climate change. It really does come down to what the impediments Mm -hmm. are and diagnosing that. Our job isn't always to be right. Our job is to move the needle when we're talking about things like this. People really dig their heels in on some of these terms. But if that term is getting in the way of your objective, then you've got to let it go. And I say this about climate change. Our firm is responsible for coming up with the term climate change to begin with. It used to be called global warming. Now it's called climate change. But in some instances, it actually was doing more damage than good. I mean, that was 20 years ago that that term was coined. Language changed over time. There's baggage associated with language. And if you can learn that there's baggage associated with language, it's almost a gift to you to know, I can remove that from the conversation and it's going to be a better conversation. And that happens in marriage, right? a conversation with my husband the other night and he said every time you say I wish you knew how I felt right I wish you understood what I'm going through he said I feel terrible it makes me feel like you're blaming me for something and I'm like oh my gosh no I'm just trying to say I wish you understood he's like well I feel bad and every time we were having that conversation it was like mm-hmm. we weren't getting anywhere because he was hearing that I was blaming him and I was just saying I want you to know this Once I knew that, that's a gift to me. I can take that language off the table so he's not defensive and I can present it in a way that he's going to hear me and then I'll be able to be heard, which is really what I'm trying to say, right? And so when you find language that has baggage around it, it is a huge opportunity for you to find connection because that's really what this is all about. I think that just comes back to that curiosity Mm -hmm. component that you spoke to at the very beginning, being curious as to what is stalling things. What is that thing? And why do they feel the way they feel? Why, what do they do about it? And why do they believe what they believe? And you have to have that curiosity in order to identify that. So Lee, this has been really great. And what a topic. And I've really enjoyed the time Thank that you you've so much. chosen to share with us. Thank you. And that's all we have for this episode of Success Shorts. Hopefully you found today's topic useful. And remember, have fun, stay curious, and keep it short.